Welcome to the Prize of Possibility podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mitch Ablett. I have a strong belief that the greatest prizes in life are hidden in plain sight. They are the nuances, the nooks and crannies of everyday moments that are easily missed. Join me in these conversations with authors and influencers and researchers to miss fewer of them, to truly claim these prizes. All right, so welcome everyone to the show. I am here with Richard Gerling. Uh, Rich is a former uh, police officer, law enforcement officer, 24 years, I believe, that I, I gleaned from uh, your website, Rich. Uh, he's a former lieutenant of a police force in Oregon, and he is also a uh, former U.S. Uh, Coast Guard member for 27 years. Uh, now retired from law enforcement, he is a certified mindfulness trainer and frequent speaker. Uh, he's also uh, been involved in some uh, you know, NIH-sponsored research projects looking at uh, mindfulness and resilience uh, factors. Uh, and I believe that's with law enforcement, but you, know, you can clarify that for me. Yeah, he, uh, he does a lot of trainings with folks in the law enforcement community trying to build what I would call the inner skills uh, around resilience uh, and really with a theme around mindfulness. Uh, Rich and I uh, met briefly last summer, and we're just remarking before starting the recording, I cannot believe it's been almost a year, and with everything that all of us have been through. Uh, but Rich, awesome to have you on the show, and uh, welcome. Thanks, Mitch. Really great to be here with you. Um, yeah, a whole lot to talk about here. I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, there is. I was, I always prep before interviews. I, I have to say, I... Uh, you know, even though I've been, I've done thousands of interviews with people as a therapist over the, the many years, but, you know, relatively new to the podcast gig. And, you know, I, I've learned so far in this thing to prep, but also to show up, which is where the, the mindfulness stuff comes in. But, uh, you know, so, you know, I do have some notes and whatnot, but I, I, I want to see where we go because there's obviously a lot on people's minds these days with regard to, you know, law enforcement, police, all the, all that we're seeing on the news, Black Lives Matter, you know, institutional racism and how that intersects with, uh, you know, social reform. I want to start with this though. You know, I, I just have to tell you, um, I think it was right before Christmas and I was sitting in here in my study trying to bang out the end of uh, my book I had been working on. And we got a knock on the door, which during COVID is like, who's coming to the door, right? And open the door. My wife and I both arrived at the front door at the same time. And, you know, we live in Newton, Massachusetts, like, you know, very safe, you know, very, you know, you know, relatively well-off area that we live in. And it was a uh, Newton uh, police officer. And very nice guy. And he said, hey, I saw, you know, I'll leave it nameless, but we had a couple of politically oriented signs out at the street corner. And he's like, I just want you to know, I think it's cool that you guys are expressing yourself. 
And then we proceeded to have a 30-minute conversation. And he told us about his experience of his career. He was in his late 50s, early 60s, had been on uh, the force for a long, long time, and heard lots of things that I've talked to officers before, but he really gave us some of his experience. And I have to say, it struck me, not only the kind of the humanity of what he was describing about how hard it had been to be an officer all these years and recently, um, how much he had wanted to retire, but he felt like he needed to stay in in order to provide for his family and stuff. Um, but I, you know, and I don't think it was just a COVID factor. I hadn't, I don't think I had talked to an officer, particularly at any depth, in years. And so I, I just want to start with that. There was like, it was such a straight, I had to like write about it. I came back into my study and I ended, ended up putting a little blurb in the book about it. So I don't know what your thoughts are about that. It just, it's just where I wanted to start. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, that's some remarkable humanity. And it makes me wonder, you know, this officer and just how frequently police officers crave for that humanity and crave for that mm. connection that, that isn't attached to a criminal incident they're investigating, that isn't attached to a, a crisis, that's just simply a connection with community and a conversation. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting, and maybe it's the, maybe it's the psychotherapist in you, but what's interesting is that you have this really this stranger who comes to your door and who is is vulnerable, and yeah, and what just and just showing up as a human, right? Like you know, vulnerable also just to knock on your door and just just to create a connection to say, hey, I think it's cool, because um, frankly, I'm I mean I'm not you know I'd I'd have to of course be polite, but I would be really curious about if someone came to my door to say, Hey, you know, it's really cool. And, you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. What's this about? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like, okay, what's going on? You know, someone robbed me in my back door. Then, no, is this a diversion? Right. You know? Right. Um, and, but you know, I think that this conversation about policing in America, this conversation about mindfulness and, and the intersection of mindfulness and policing is about two things. Yes. It's about humanity and it's about trauma. Mm. It's it's really that's it. That's all it's about, and and fundamentally, as as this nation reckons with with the racism inside the criminal justice system, yeah, and and as it reckons with how policing operationalizes that systemic racism, yes. and how and how it shows up in police culture, and then frankly how it shows up in the community that supports what's happening in the police institution, and that's something we don't want to talk about. Right. right. So we, as a, as a nation, as a community of people, we have a, we, we have some uh, accountability. We have some, uh, you know, com complicity, complicity with what has been occurring. Um, yes. And then uh, those of us that were inside the system or are inside the system were in fact, or are in fact in some way complicit with, with what's broken about policing too. Yes. Um, and so I, I don't dismiss that, you know, um, even, even the last 15 years of my career, I worked to create change, I work to advocate for the evolution of policing, for police reform, yes. and 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 I still had some accountability for being complicit, right? So yeah. I just want to say that up front. Yeah, um, very important. So, you know, I think that um, we we have 
failures of systems. So maybe just strategically, we can, can get my perspective here. Yeah, yeah, go for we it. We have a lot of systems that are failing in America. Uh-huh. Um, we have an educational system that in some way um, is is reckoning with its failure. We have um, we have an economic system that is creating tremendous disparities of wealth, uh, yes. you know, just disconnections. You know, um, they're the, just looking the other day that the the world's most wealthiest people got wealthier over the last, you know, 16 months. That's right. You know, and it's like, how is that conscionable? You know, I had a conversation with a, a buddy of mine uh, who, who works in the tech world in the San Francisco area. And, you know, he posed this question to me. He's like, Rich, how, how is it possible that we have these entire communities of homeless people on the street? Yeah. In one of the world's richest, like there's probably more per capita billionaires in San Francisco area than, than anywhere in the world. Now, maybe that's not accurate, but right, right, right. right? And yes. how is it possible that we we have such tremendous disparity of wealth? You know, and, and, and then globally, of course, too, we can look at, you know, the, the healthcare system failures in India, and yet much of the wealthy world is sort of, we stood by for far too long before we provided any intervention with that. Right. Um, and, and so... There's there's so many things going on that this come back zoom back here you know to a focal point here in the United States with policing in America where we expect police officers to to be at the end of all of those broken systems yes and we expect them to do that skillfully right and you know so for example can't tell you how many times uh, as a police lieutenant I would field calls from politicians and community members business owners complaining about people who had no home, who were living on the street, sleeping on a bench, let's say on Main Street, right, where there's businesses. Yeah. And you know, and I, at one point, I got to a point where it's like talking to a business owner. It's like, so because they're dirty and stinky and they're, they're hanging out on the bench, yeah. so, so, so what? We, what do you want me to do? Right. <laughs> like, right. you want me to violate their civil rights because, because they're unpleasant and uncomfortable for you? And you don't like to look at them. You don't like to smell them. Right, you're worried about customers. Yeah, 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 and of course, it's much more complicated than than how I'm describing it. Yeah, yet, yet, fundamentally, um, (laughs) we're we're doing a lot of things that, or not doing a lot of things that could prevent homelessness, that could prevent, you know, substance abuse, addiction, that could prevent crime. Um, You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if 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 we could educate young children and, and nourish and nurture young children in ways that didn't create adverse childhood trauma, which, yes. which drive them towards dysregulation as young adults and adults they, that, that push them towards these things that make them a customer of law enforcement. Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be great if we had a healthcare system that addressed preventive uh, mental health issues? Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot of things that I think contribute to this and so so that's kind of like you know my kind of you know maybe it's maybe it's a bit moderate or slightly left of center viewpoint but keep in mind Mitch I was trained in economics Uh, that's my my academic background Uh Um, and and I think that you know we, we can do a lot a lot of work upstream yes that will prevent a lot of downstream trauma in our society and so whether you're left important. or right, you know, whether you're Democrat or Republican, it doesn't matter. What matters right. is what are we investing in the infrastructure of our, of our humanity in this nation? And so, and now you have a cop who day in, day out deals with 
human suffering in ways that most people don't have to see. Right. Um, and we we don't train law enforcement officers in skills and humanity. We train them in in um, sort of didactic ways of being, right? We train them in knowledge. Um, right. I just had this conversation with a, a police officer today who we were training, and he's been through a lot of trauma-informed training, right? Uh-huh. So, so he understands trauma, but he was just like, so help me understand, why is it that we're doing all this training around trauma-informed and, and how my how my victims are traumatized and how I need to understand that and helps me interview them and, yes. and all that. And, and yet there's no trauma informed inward for the police officer. Super right? important. Yes. And so in the work that I do, Mitch is I train, I train from trauma informed to what I like to refer to as trauma competent. Oh, and so okay. yes. if, we can, if we can train police officers to be skillful at bearing witness to human suffering, Yep. And taking skillful right action in that suffering. Yes. And we can train them to hold their, their skills in humanity. So, for example, just simple things like, well, not so simple, compassion and empathy. Right. Um, and, and working with, with um, the mindfulness skills practice is so critically important because really what we're doing with mindfulness is we're paying attention without the kinds of judgments that emerge. Yes. In, in your constant exposure to suffering, right? Um, so what I've come to believe in the last, you know, 15 years of doing work with mindfulness and policing and researching and my own practice and my own work operationally in law enforcement is that training mindfulness skills, like this deep inner work. So not just, oh, let me teach you to meditate, but a deep inner work of mindfulness skills, which means we're diving into awareness skills and compassion yes. skills and we're learning how to work with judgment and how to separate our own bias and judgment from what, what we really need, which is wise discernment. Right. Training those skills is the foundation of, of organic technology that we need in policing in America. And we will not succeed in police reform until we deal with occupational trauma. Yes. And, and, and until we also reframe what police culture looks like, what the ethos of service and police culture looks like, because yep. it's deeply warped by unmitigated occupational trauma. Yes, this is super, super important. And I'm sure those listening are, you know, taking in everything that you're saying may have reactions. But let me say this, I listen in prepping for this interview, Rich, I listened to your TED talk that you gave back in what, 2016? Yeah. And I I did not catch and then write it down who you were quoting. Um, you might remember. If not, we're both in trouble. But <laughs> but you said you said the the quote from this person was the police are the people and the people are the police. And I don't remember who that was, yeah, but yeah. I, I may be getting the quote wrong. Yeah. But well, it's it's roughly accurate, Mitch. That, I mean, that, that's um, that's Sir Robert Peel, who's the infamous sort of father of modern policing, right? Um, yeah. And, and also, I mean, a number of people have requoted that. Yes. Um, yeah, and that's that's um, yeah. I mean, I think we 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 need to hold on to that. But you know, a note about that TED talk that that was really. That was one of the most uh, intimidating things I've done, not because it was a TEDx talk, but yeah. because I'm a white male cop. Yes. Part of a group of like, there may have been two or three 
you know, Caucasian folks in the audience, but it was a group of people of color. Yes. And one thing I've recognized is that I can have some comments about racism in policing, um, but it's it's but it's a really difficult place to be when when I grew up in it, right? I was I was yes. socialized by racism, and um, I'm still doing my own work to learn how how to untrain myself from some of those racist socializations and tendencies and behaviors and ways of thinking. And so that was early on in, in my sort of awakening to the depths of racism. Now I understood it long before that talk, but um, you know, when you're like on, on one level, it was like this deep discomfort of, okay, what am I going to be able to say to these people in the room who experienced this? Yes. You know? Like, yes. but, but at the same time, it's a conversation that we had to be honest about and get started. And you can imagine there's a tremendous amount of criticism about, from that talk. And there's one agency in, in California, in the Bay Area, that the chief told me he has all of his sergeants watch that talk, which is a little like, really? I mean, you know, really wasn't that good. But it, it's basically like, hey, here's one of your own. Here, here's one of your brothers in law enforcement calling yes. us out and saying, hey, we need to address this. See, this is super important because I, when I listen to that and I, you know, with this podcast and in general in my work, you know, when, when we can drop in to what is just present moment true and speak to that, what I call undeniable truth, it's here, even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. That's what I think when you and I practice mindfulness formally, that's what it's for. Is so that we can drop in and be fully present and compassionate. You know, when I when I heard that, I'll be honest, like as a white middle-aged guy of privilege who has been raised in a in that privilege and institutionalized racism, you know, I've benefited greatly, even though I never had any intention to e exhibit any racist behavior or attitudes. And yet I was complicit in a system and continue to be where others don't have that same privilege and experience. And so, yes, the, you know, the people, the police are the people and uh, the people are the police. And yet different people have very different experiences and very different traumas. And what I wonder is that the real truth behind the surface that people might react to, like, well, you don't know my experience and there aren't enough people of color on my police force. So that quote is inaccurate. Beneath all of that is that there is this common humanity that we're not talking to each other enough. We're not really sharing. We're not really courageous enough, perhaps on all sides, to be able to drop in and say, you know what? I, I freaking stepped in it over there and I don't know what your truth is because I can never be in somebody else's truth. And yet I'm here acknowledging ignorance or malfeasance and, you know, teach me. And to me, that is the deep part of that quote that may not have been intended, but it's like, that feels important to say, like, you know, I know we're two white guys talking about this stuff and that that itself is hard for others, perhaps. And yet I'm willing to kind of say it in a lot of ways I'm ignorant. And yet 
I'm thinking there needs to be conversation about it. Not just my ignorance, but others as well. And what, how can we connect up? So I know I just went really broad, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't, um, I don't apologize for, for who I am. I, I recognize my limitations. Um, I, I mean, honestly, maybe I don't sometimes, right? I mean, the goal is to constantly practice this awareness of, of who I am and where I am in context to people and places and all that. Um, and, and I do think too that, you know, the work that I do with teaching mindfulness isn't so much work, um, to solve the problem in, in racism and policing. It, it yes. is, to be, it is to begin to address it. You know, I had a conversation, yes. with, had a conversation yesterday with a police chief in Northern California, who's making some, you know, making some leadership efforts to shift culture. And that's very, very difficult. And, um, you know, so I don't come to a conversation with the police chief with some prescriptive solution and say, chief, if you do this, then that will happen. And that's really, that's the paradigm of, of that institution though, right? It's, you know, you, it's like, well, we do this training and then this outcome will happen. With yes. Mindfulness skills training, it's, it's really interesting because it's, um, you know, it starts with what's the vision of the community for their police agency, what do they want? What do they want the culture, the ethos of their police department to look like? How do they want to interact with their police department? And then with the city manager and, and the chief, uh, it might be, you know, what's your vision for how you how you execute that community vision? And um, and I think that you know mindfulness training can align with that. Mindfulness training can help bring a leadership team and and the personnel within the organization, both sworn police officers and civilian support staff can bring them the kinds of, of self-awareness and self-regulation and self-compassion skills that are critically important to be able to show up in the 21st century in this profession. Yes. And, and that self-awareness, self-compassion, self-regulation, you know, we might shorten that and call it self-efficacy. That, that self-efficacy is cultivated through really hard work, hard inner work of building mindfulness skills um, you know, what you referred to earlier as inner skills. Absolutely. It, it's hard work. And, you know, it has the potential to transform our relationship to ourself. Yes. To transform our relationship to trauma and, and to transform our relationship to the ethos of service that we came into the profession with and to align it with with really what, what what's becoming this this 21st century ethos of service in policing which is not consistent with, broadly speaking, it's not consistent with much of police culture today. Yeah. And police culture, you know, and this is, this is where, this is where it gets really interesting and tricky, but you know, we've all heard of the thin blue line, right? We've heard of this yeah. idea and there is a, there is an appropriate place for that affinity with this identity of, of profession. Uh -huh. I think unfortunately what's happened is that the thin blue line has become both a line to hide behind mm. from accountability, but it's also become the line from which we stand in maladaptive othering of our community that we're serving. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and Mish, you know, we could, we could draw lines based on what we know about the neurobiology of trauma. We could draw lines straight from trauma to that reality. Yes. And, and so what we haven't done well 
is teach skills in trauma competency. Right. Teach skills. So from that, we have skills in humanity. We haven't resourced officers to maintain their skill and compassion. Yeah. Right. To be able to hold to this notion of what it means to be in service to others. And so the culture has sort of just adapted in ways that, you know, like in some cities during COVID, uh, um, we've seen, you know, we've seen protests in the streets where officers show up wearing a American flag face mask with a thin blue line through it, which mm. them is, is, that feels perfectly normal for them. They're like, yeah, you know, this is our brothers and sisters, but to the community, it's, it's almost become a symbol of racism. Yeah. And, and it's intimidating and, right. and it's threatening. And yet we're blind to that because we see it as something different. That's right. And, 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 you know, police officers are an agent of the government. They have an obligation to adapt to the community's needs, not their own. And yet right. they, we don't see it that way, you know? So, um, there's you know, a so lot of, a there's a lot of paradigm shifting that's called for, and that's really hard. It is hard. And, and it, and, and here's the reality is we can't legislate that, you know, we can't no. just, we just can't create a policy. And, and we've been doing this for years. We create policies that say, go do community policing, have compassion for your, you know, for the, for, for your community members. And we have police officers like the guy who visited you, who probably say something like, I'd love to be compassionate. I'd love to care. Yeah. I just don't have it. I don't have anything left. Right. I have nothing and left. Look, Yes. So they're in states of empathic distress. They're in what we used to call that burnout, or we used to, actually we used to call it compassion fatigue, which isn't really that. Or, or our compassion skills just erode because we're constantly exposed to human suffering. We're trauma injured, and we're not seeking interventions to move into recovery and healing. Yeah, we're just sort of we're just in it, and and we're sick. That's right. right. And we're not capable of the kind of performance that we need to deliver well it's not that we're not capable so we're not resourced for it we're certainly capable i mean these men and women in policing are remarkable human beings they're capable yes. of so much more right it's just a matter of so we have some leadership failures in the institution and in the community we have yeah. institutional failures um really you know when talk police reform we're talking about reforming from the inside out right and and giving people not just tangible resources, but that paradigm shift comes with education and comes with, you know, everyone focusing in on this is, this is so important to go in. And by the way, and you and I had had this conversation, you know, almost a year ago, it's not weak to do that. You know, and I hear this a lot, you know, being in the, the mindfulness world, I'm sure you do too, that yeah, uh, mindfulness is so quickly associated with you know hippydom and rainbows and unicorns, and it's it's very passive and at times maybe looking selfish or sitting on a cushion or going off on a retreat, and then let alone bring up compassion. Well, that's just downright weak. That's not an active thing. That's not a thing where, you know, particularly for someone who's up against physical intimidation or dangerous scenarios, as police often are. So there's a there's a messaging issue, you know, as well. But to me, it's like both upstream and downstream, what are the core elements that need to shift? 
it's we need to bring in some some understanding of the heart and the mind and techniques and skills for being able to open so that we can understand truly understand with both the heart and the mind and that's on both sides that's police and non-police Yeah, you know, and, and the complexity of mindfulness is really interesting. Um, and we've talked about this before, and it's always a fun conversation. You know, th there are totally appropriate and skillful places where mindfulness is taught where it wouldn't be culturally relevant or appropriate or accepted in my in, in the folks that I work with. Yeah. Um, and so it's not to say that there aren't approaches that, that aren't effective or appropriate. However, it is to say that there are some approaches that are just absolutely the wrong approach to mindfulness and policing. Yeah. And, and often, it, I mean, most often for people who don't understand police culture, they come to policing with the wrong kind of language, the wrong kind of conversation. And, and, you know, so here's the interesting thing. This is how I frame this. So I guess the work that I do is training to, sort of three domains of the whole person. We're training to the health of the person, mm. the officer, police officer, let's be specific. So the health mm -hmm. of the police officer, we're training to the humanity of the police officer mm -hmm. and we're training to their capacity for human performance. Yes. And so just today, for example, I had a session with a group of police officers where the, the conversation today was around emotion and compassion. Mm -hmm. And we, we look at evidence-based, uh, ways to frame both emotion and compassion. And I've become an, just a total fan of Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett at a Northeastern University with her work around emotion, um, uh -huh. the, constructed, the constructed theory of emotion. And, and you know, and, and with all respect to the folks from the classical theory of emotion, it's just that the constructed theory of emotion resonates so much more operationally with mm -hmm. what, I, what I've experienced and how I know I can train. And, and so, what we're teaching police officers is with mindfulness skills, we're asking you to come sit in stillness and pay uh -huh. attention to what's present. Yes. So pay attention to what you're thinking, pay attention to what sensations are in the body and pay attention to what's there in the emotional weather. And for most first responders, most police officers, when they sit in stillness, immediately we go to anxiety. Yeah. Why? Because we're constantly on the move and we're constantly dealing with one crisis or the next, right? And there's yeah. very little downregulation time. In fact, there's very little skills that we teach police officers to downregulate between radio calls. Yeah. And, and so we're conditioned, we're habituated into constantly being switched on. Right. Yes. So said differently, our, our neurophysiological arousal is is always at a high level. And right. sometimes one might argue it's hyper aroused. Um, and so the goal is to bring it down, you know, to bring down that arousal state and to pay attention to what's going on. And that's super, super uncomfortable. Yep. But once we train to understand that emotions, for example, are neurobiological phenomenon mm -hmm. and turn them off. Right. Yep. Yep. We can we can only recognize that they're emerging, and the sooner we do that, the more skillful we can be at regulating. Mm -hmm. And and we also recognize too. And it's one reason why I love Lisa's work is because we have this culture in police training that still buys into the triune brain, that still buys into the fact that you, you, if emotion emerges, then that means you can't think clearly. 
Yes. And and that's one of the greatest non-evidence-based lies that we tell our police officers in training. And, and it might sound really trivial, but it's critically important because what that training myth does is it conditions police officers to reject and fight and try to oppress emotion. That is honestly, Rich, the first time I've ever heard that. And that is, and I actually feel embarrassed as a psychologist that I've not heard that argument before in a particular way in which that could get in the way for a specific group. That's super important. Right, because Mitch, if I'm a real badass police officer in the middle of a critical incident, yeah, if I'm feeling fear, then dude, there's something wrong with me. Then that fear is gonna yes. it, it's it, it's gonna hijack my ability to think clearly, right? So it's a threat. I have to suppress it, right? Yes. And so I spend all this cognitive and physical energy trying to suppress fear, and I get dumber. Yeah. Right. So that's instead of going, instead of being having this mindful, non-judgmental awareness, going, oh, that's interesting that fear is emerging. Hello, fear. Come alongside. Be with yeah. me, but but stay behind me. Right. I almost I must use profanity. I got to be careful which podcast <laughs> I'm on. You know, stay <laughs> stay behind me and, yeah. and just skillfully regulate it and know that there's nothing wrong with me because fear isn't there. In fact, understanding the science is fear is just my brain going, "Hey, Rich, dude, yes. pay attention." That's there's, right. There's, alert. There's some, alert. There's, there's some things going on here that are not normal. Right? Yeah. We're not sitting on a podcast talking to Mitch. We're actually right. out here. You know, there's some shit going on. We have to pay attention to. Right. And, and to work with that is actually a skillful response to emotion. And then when you add sadness and you add anger and you add all these other things to it, um, we get really dysregulated, not just on the individual level, but as a culture. That's this is super important. And and again, embarrassing for me because I've repeated that lie. <laughs> I'm sure even recently, you know, I like to talk to kids and I'm, you know, ripping off somebody else's uh, analogy. We have the wizard brain and the lizard brain. <laughs> I love that. And it rhymes and kids remember it and whatnot. And yet it's perpetuating perhaps yeah. unintentionally, you know, something that can get in the way, particularly for specific groups where they need to be able to hang out and learn that it's okay to hang out with emotion. Right, right. You know, and so really what, what I do and with the team of really remarkable trainers that I get to work with, we operationalize some of the latest theories around emotion and, and brain science, and we bring it to an operational place where it's like, hey, y'all, you're going to experience emotion. You can't turn yes. it off. You can't compartmentalize it, which is another term that we use in the military and in law enforcement. You have to be with it. You have to experience it. Now that right. doesn't mean you dysregulate. So we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna lose our sense of regulation, our sense of self, and end up in a fetal position crying. Which right. you know, there's a place for that too. I mean, there is a place yes. for that, but it's not. That's a very selective place, right? It's yeah. not in the middle of a crisis. You know, so we regulate and we experience, and it's uncomfortable, and it may even, you know, it may even be really uncomfortable. But we can move through it skillfully, yes. and then. You know, again, the mindfulness comes back to us. This integrated mindfulness, awareness, and compassion comes back to us. And it helps us to make informed decisions about what we do with ourselves. Yes. You know, so we notice patterns of emotion, patterns of thinking, patterns of sensations in the body. And we have greater intelligence to go talk to our medical doctor, to talk to our psychotherapist, to, to work yes. out of interventions, again, to process trauma, to work towards healing, and set conditions for post-traumatic growth, which... 
is rarely ever even talked about. Rarely. Policing. Yeah. You know, rarely like, talked about, period. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. This is can I can I jump in around that? Because I I think that A that I'm I'm continuing to have a ripple effect uh around that distinction, uh around allowing emotion and not per perpetuating that analogy around the lizard brain or the triune brain, whatever you want to call it, that those parts of your brain are still activated and aren't fully gone. You, you know, you can actively try to suppress them, but there's a cost to that. And I, you know, here was my question I was going to put out to you. Have you ever found it useful to garner officers values for lack of another word, or that the parts of them that it does matter to them to show up to courage. And there's an inherent bravery that they, you know, they face many dangers. And yet here is part of you that is sparking a desire to suppress and push away because it's uncomfortable. And there may even be fear about going into it. Is it ever useful not to shame them, but to say, let's take that part of you that wants to show up and, and be courageous and realize that we got to flip on its head. That paradigm that says, no, no, that's not part of courage to feel this stuff. And to let ourselves courageously stay with some of those things as they show up. I mean, I'm, I'm super interested in what you might think about that. Yeah, that's a, that's a big doorway to step into. Um, so let me be critical a bit about some of the things that have been going on in police culture and police training. There's a, there's a fair amount of training, and some of which has been paid for by the federal Department of Justice um, programs, program training models, that focus very much on this notion of courage. Um, and, and frankly, I, just, I think that some of it is just sort of this um, indoctrination nonsense. And so, you know, we have pictures of pictures of lions and great stoic quotes from Seneca and other yes. know, speakers. And, and what we're focusing on is sort of almost brainwashing the attendee of training to say that, you know, you're in this noble profession and it's, you know, you, you know demonstrate courage and and all this sort of bravado. And, you know, I. I don't know that that has been terribly helpful because what we're not doing is we're not talking about what's underneath courage. Well, I'll tell mm. you what's underneath courage, Mitch. What's underneath courage sometimes is terror. Yes. What's, what's underneath courage sometimes is is some level of fear. If it's not terror, it's 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 some skepticism. It's uh, it's it's some unknown. It's um, it's pain. It's suffering. And there's so many components to courage that don't sound sexy, like the term courage. Yeah. Doubt, and it, it, doubt and confusion. Of course. Yes, of course. Right. All of those things. And so it's really easy for us to talk about courage. Yes. But what we don't do skillfully is go in there. Well, hey, let's work with doubt. Let's work with confusion. Let's work with fear. Right. And let's work with anger. And yeah. and I think so what I've done is I've jettisoned the 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 banners the sort of this the sexy words like courage and noble yes. all that because they're meaningless unless we actually resource underneath those concepts and so yeah. i think when we train to be aware of emotion we bring in some science and we bring in some contemplative wisdom and we teach police officers 
how do you sit with your own emotion and sometimes to recognize that it sucks. Sometimes you yes. don't like the experience of your own emotion and there's really very little you can do to change that, but what you can change is your relationship to it. Yes. Right? And so I'd rather do that, which is much less dramatic and it's much harder to market in the in the marketplace of, of training yep. for policing, but it also is incredibly transformational. And yes. Then, and then what emerges from that is actually courage. So we're not yes. training we're not training people to be courageous. We're training people to be resourced in their own humanity and from that courage will emerge. It emerges. It's not a uh billable item up front. It's right. not a marketing packaging ploy. Right. But it, it, it but emerges those- but those kind of marketing and packaging ploys are actually, they're well at play. And even, even with good intention, funded yeah. by U.S. Department of Justice to try to change police culture. And I, I just don't believe that, that they really go deep enough to create the kind of change we need to, to create. This is super cool because, again, my ignorant self, right? It made sense to me, but I honestly don't know. But yet somebody could hire me as a PhD clinical psychologist and author of blah, blah, blah books around mindfulness to come into a police department as a consultant, right? And I could be like, well-intentioned, but this is my whole meta point around being willing to pause, drop in and like, let's really talk about this and be willing to be wrong be willing to be ignorant, be willing to show the the doubt and the confusion and be willing to step in it. And, and that's, that's what's super, super important. You know, cause I, I, I I'm going to really watch myself around perpetuating the triune brain. I've honestly not heard that before. I'm like, oh, wow, that can really see where that would get in the way. Yeah. And there's probably data about how that gets in the way. Uh, in terms of training results or just, you know, know, how people respond. But then this piece around don't, don't lead with quotes from, you know, that are assumptions that you're only courageous if you do this stuff or you're, you know, you know, it's already who you are. Well, not if we haven't touched down into what's beneath the surface. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I have to flash back to, Many, many years ago, my grandfather was um, at Pearl Harbor, but not when it was attacked. He was the chief gunner's mate on a destroyer, a minesweeper. And his was one of the few boats out of maneuvers that morning of the attack. And they were just outside the harbor. They, you know, they actually saw the attack coming in. They went back. So it was cleanup. He saw combat later, like Iwo Jima in particular. Long story short, he saw combat. He saw a lot of stuff. And I was sitting with him when he was in his, I don't know, early, late 70s when I was a kid. And I said, Grandpa, I know you fought in the war. You know, that means you were really brave. And he did. And I've worked at the VA before I, uh, you know, when I first came to Boston. And I, I got the, the, the scrunched shoulders. Huh? You know. I guess. And I said, well, you, you fought, right? And he goes, yes, that means you were never afraid. (laughs) And I was probably eight. And he goes, that's when he perked up. 
and we were sitting on a little swing in his backyard in Southern Ohio. And he goes, Mitchell, let me tell you something. That ain't courage. It ain't a John Wayne movie. He said, I was so terrified. I peed myself and yet I fought anyway. And I think that's what we're talking about. Yeah. 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 And you know, that's, um, yeah, I mean, it's a great, you know, anecdote from, you know, from one of the greatest generation members. Right. Um, and, and I think that, you know, what we're, what we're doing with mindfulness training and policing is to connect the officer to their humanity and to the reality that they do experience these things. And, but also to the hope and hope is a, just a significant component of this because we're, we're asking them come in, to come and sit in stillness and practice this thing called mindfulness meditation and pay attention. And that can be, that can be uncomfortable at first. I think, I think eventually we get really skillful at being in that discomfort. So it's a place we want, we choose to go to after a while, but we're asking them to do that. But we're also giving them hope that they can actually be skillful at discomfort. Yes. Whether that discomfort is an intense emotion or that discomfort is a physical injury or that discomfort is their own, you know, rumination over something or whether that discomfort is external. Yep. Right. Is this the intensity of, of a critical incident or intensity of whatever it is they're dealing with. And so we're giving them some hope that they can really become good at working with trauma. This is this notion of trauma competency. Yeah. Right. And they cultivate skills that allow them to skillfully, one, train for the trauma that we know they'll be exposed to, but to skillfully move through it, to skillfully perform their tradecraft with humanity. So what do we mean yes. by skillfully? It's with humanity. Right. And, and, to, and to come out sort of through the, through the acute trauma and even the chronic trauma and to take informed actions, right? to yeah. make sure they can come back and do this again. Right. Um, and one of the pieces that's, I think, really important here is, you know, we, we talked about racism a bit, we talked about culture change. Yes. Mindfulness is a really important skill to teach police officers to help them navigate this landscape of change. Right. And part of what we're doing when we're navigating change is we're reckoning with our own closely held ideas our closely held judgments, yes. or said differently, our closely held biases. And mindfulness meditation allows us to pay attention to those and, and to right. notice maybe what we might not otherwise have noticed had we not specifically brought attention to the judgment that emerges yes. in these practices of mindfulness. And when we notice them, we can begin to shift those habits of, of thinking called bias. Right. And I think that you know, before we move officers into diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism training, or whatever it is that's going to emerge, and it will, there's no doubt, if we can resource them in, in fundamental skills and mindfulness, yeah, those kinds of, of, of evolutionary trainings are going to work. Right, because they'll have had a foundation of noticing the moment-to-moment -moment changes that mindfulness practice gives you. Right, and a, and a foundation of skills to even begin to acknowledge that I have some work to do. Right, 
right? To begin to acknowledge that I don't have to just be defensive. I can relax that defensiveness, still take care of myself and explore the possibilities of my own evolution as a professional in this, in this policing profession Yes, and to grow with it, even though it's uncomfortable, even though maybe I didn't like the idea, but maybe I can warm to it and recognize that, okay, yeah, this isn't threatening to me. This yes. is actually helpful. I can be a part of this, this evolution of reform and I don't have to resist it. And I can embody this 21st century uh, ethos that, that we're seeking in policing in America today. Super, super important conversation, Rich. I, I want to be mindful of the time that you put in. And hey, let me ask, where where can people find out more about your work? Where can they go to, to learn more about these very important things that you're doing? Yeah, my website, mindfulbadge, mindfulbadge.com. Uh, that's the place Great. to get some more info and you can figure out how to reach me there. So Awesome. Thank you so much, Rich. This is This has been great. Yeah, thank you, Mitch. Great to be here with you. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of The Prize of Possibility. I hope you found things of benefit here. If so, please consider giving this show a positive review. Such feedback is not only great to hear, um, it also really helps elevate the show so that others can find benefit from it. Please stay tuned. More episodes, some great guests on the way so that we can together discover these true life prizes in daily life. Take care. Thank you.